Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Amen. Well, today I'm beginning a brand new series um, and I'm calling this Encountering God. And we're going to unpack through God's Word. The, 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 there are so many ways in God's Word that we actually encounter God. So many ways that we connect with God. So many ways that we experience God. Is belief in God real? Or is belief in God just nothing more than some kind of vague or vain hope? That God exists and, and somehow for those who are a little emotionally weak, it makes them feel a little bit better about themselves? Or is there something more to it? Can we actually encounter God in a way that impacts our life and dare I say even totally transform our lives? That's what I want to attempt to begin to unpack through this series. How do we encounter God? Today, I actually want to talk about probably the number one thing, and that's encountering God's love. How do we encounter God's love? What does God's love look like? And on what basis can I personally experience the love of God? Now, this is a huge topic, and I'm actually going to uh, tackle this in two parts this week and next week. The fact that God is a God of love is one of the most basic truths about God. There are countless scriptures that talk about God's love. The psalmist speaks of God's unfailing love. Jeremiah speaks of his everlasting love. Psalm 86 speaks of God abounding in love. And there are just so many scriptures that tell us about the loving nature of God. But then I think the greatest statement is in 1 John 4 and 8 that tells us God is love. God is love. It's not just something God does. This is actually the core of God's being, that He is love. Love is what God is. It's not even just one of His attributes. Uh, by that I mean, you know, we talk about God being a powerful God. That's an attribute of God. Uh, we talk about God being an omniscient God. That means God knows everything there is to know. And again, that's an attribute of God. But God is love is the very core of the being of God. Now, I want to briefly give us a bit of background to help us understand three specific ways that we see God's love being expressed through Scripture. And the, the, the first thing that I see is the universal nature of God's love. John 3 and 16, many of us would be familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is God's universal love. God loves the whole world. There is not a single person on the street that you can meet 
whom God does not love. So this is God's all-encompassing love for the entirety of humanity, His universal love. Deuteronomy 10 and 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And again, this is speaking of God's universal love for all of humanity. Secondly, we have what we call God's covenant love. God's covenant love, when we talk about the Old Testament, we often talk about it in terms of the Old Covenant. And in that, we see God's covenant love towards his chosen people, Israel. The object of God's love under the Old Covenant is the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 and 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keep, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generation of those who love him and keep his commands. And God says of Israel, his chosen people, I love you. Not because you're any better than anybody else. I just love you because I love you because I love you and you are my chosen people. I've set you apart for a particular purpose. My chosen people and I love you. So that's God's old covenant love expressed towards the nation of Israel. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we have the new covenant and the object of God's covenant love under the new covenant is the church, which wonderfully includes you and I to this very day. Romans 5 and 5, uh, sorry, Ephesians 5 and 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So God has a universal love, his love for all of humanity. He has a covenant love. That's a love for his people today, his love for the church. And then there is his individual love. And we've got to get a hold of this. Friends, here is a wonderful truth that you need to know. God loves you. He loves you personally. He loves you individually. He just loves you because he loves you. He delights in you. Romans 5 and 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit He's given us. This is a really, really intimate, personal thing. God has poured His love into your heart personally and individually. And it's this personal experience of God's love that I want to unpack today and then continue next week. The fact that God loves me. God loves you. But here's the thing. Encountering God's love is not an automatic thing. We often hear that God's love is unconditional. And we have to be really, really clear on this point. The nature of God's love is unconditional. But personally experiencing God's love is not unconditional. 
The fact that God is love, that's an unchanging fact about God. But our personal encounter of God's love, our personal experience of God's love is conditional. And we come to understand that from Scripture. First of all, my experience of God's love for me is conditional upon my love for Him. Now that's not rocket science because it's actually true of any relationship. You can have... Oh, you can, you can uh, love somebody and they don't love you back. You might even love them really, really deeply. But if they don't love you back, all it does is cause pain. To actually experience the benefit of somebody's love, that love must be reciprocated, it must be shared, it must be mutual. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, it speaks of God's heart being filled with pain. Why? Well, verse 8, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness of the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Why was his heart filled with pain? His heart was filled with pain because he was loving people who did not love him back. So in order for us to personally experience the love of God and the depth of his love for us, we've got to love him back. But more than that, we're actually commanded to love God. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength. That reads like a command because it is a command. So there's a question. Is it possible to command people to love? Kind of sounds funny to command people to love. It seems at odds with the nature of love. Because we often talk about things like, um, you know, falling in love with somebody or it was love at first sight. And there's this element of romantic love that, like, I didn't even see it coming. It just kind of happened. It was a spontaneous thing. I wasn't even expecting it. It was involuntary. But then we have this biblical concept of being commanded to love. Can you command someone to love? I would suggest the answer has to be yes, not just because the Bible says it. I think the answer has to be yes, because the most important part of love are not the emotions that come from being in love. And anybody that's been in any kind of long-term relationship will tell you that the feelings we associate with being in love... They're very fleeting. They come and go. Sometimes they'll be there. Sometimes they're not. And they are never a reliable gauge of the state of your love for that person. What anchors love is not the feeling of being in love. What anchors love is the commitment we make to another person, whether we feel like it or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, over the years, I've married lots and lots of couples. 
I have never on a couple's wedding day ever asked them, hey, how do you feel about them today? It's the wrong day to ask. And you can just tell by the emotion of the day, you can just tell by the way a groom just starts bawling the moment he sees his wife come through the doors of the church and begin to walk down that aisle. You can see by the level of the emotion in the room that this couple are totally in love with one another. So I don't have to ask, so how are you guys feeling about each other today? How are you feeling about this person? You can take it for granted in that moment that they are totally riding high on the emotions that being in love produces. But what I do have to ask on a couple's wedding day is this. Are you actually going to be committed to this marriage, to this person, in those seasons where the emotion that you are feeling today isn't there? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Because the truth is the vows that you write on your wedding day, they're not the lyrics to a romantic love song. The vows you make on your wedding day are a covenant promise that you are making to another person that you are agreeing to before friends, before family and before God. And it's an act of my will that I make a covenant vow to love someone on the days when I'm emotionally connected to that love, but more importantly, on the days when I'm not emotionally connected to that love. And I think this is really important for us to understand in regards to our relationship with God. I actually don't think it's a terribly helpful question to ask somebody, well, how do you feel about God? It's not a helpful question. Because I, I got to tell you, there are days where I feel the love of God and my love towards God in a way that produces a really positive emotion within me. But the truth is, there are days where I go, God, i got absolutely no idea what you're doing in my life right now. I, I don't know what's going on. I'm not experiencing the love of God in that way that produces those beautiful emotions. I'm going through some hard stuff right now. I don't know where you are, God, but what I do know is this. I'm going to persevere in my love for you, not because of how I feel, but because of who you are. Amen? Jesus was tested by the teachers of the law in Matthew 22. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets Hang on these two commandments. And again, they're commandments. 
And I think the reason that loving God and loving others are the greatest commandments is that we, if we actually could get that right, we probably wouldn't need all the other commandments. And Jesus said that these two things, loving God and loving your neighbour, they are commands. And we get it very, very clearly from God's Word that this is something we're commanded to do. And we understand the loving God bit. We're okay with that. And we can even accept that maybe my love for God is a condition of me experiencing God's love for me. We can accept that. That this is a command that we need to obey in order for us to personally encounter God's love. But the loving people bit, that seems a little bit harder. But we've got to understand that loving God and loving people are actually inseparable. You cannot say, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. In fact, John says this, 1 John 4 and 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And, I, and he has given us this, what? This command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And friends, our relationship with God and our relationship with others cannot be separated. Reaching out to God and reaching out to our neighbour in love are intimately connected. And if we do not love those who are our neighbours, if we do not love those around us, we're going to find it very difficult to personally experience the love of God. Because anyone who says, I love God, hates his brother. That's what John says. He's actually lying. He's kidding himself, says John. Now, there's no question. Sometimes it might be difficult to love our brothers, our neighbours. But what about our enemies? Ouch. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 43, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How is that possible? How can we actually love our enemies? It's a big call. I think I've shared this story from the platform before or in some other context, but in February of 2021, when the military coup broke out in Myanmar, I was invited to join a Zoom prayer meeting with a whole bunch of pastors from Yangon in Myanmar. So I jumped in late at night into this Zoom prayer meeting to pray for what was happening in the midst of this military coup. And there was a list of prayer points that was posted that we'd begun to pray through. But halfway down the list was praying for the military leaders. And when it came to that particular prayer point of these pastors praying for the military leaders, the people who were responsible for this coup and for the atrocities that were being carried out, it was emotionally totally overwhelming for all of them and for me. And for the first time in my life, I witnessed what it was to pray for those who persecute you. Now, my cultural context of persecution 
is somebody writing me an email disagreeing with something that I've said or somebody not liking something that I've posted on Facebook. That's our context for persecution. But as these Burmese pastors began praying for these military leaders who had launched this military action against their own people, a coup that was crippling their nation, a coup that was killing innocent men, women and children, and these pained prayers, they were pained prayers. Pained prayers through these, these, the anguish that came with these deep heaving sobs praying for their persecutors, praying these tears through clenched teeth. They were in absolute anguish as they prayed for their persecutors. It was so moving. It was so overwhelming. It was so incredibly humbling. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So how do we understand this in our own cultural context? Let me say one of the reasons we find passages like this so difficult is because the English word love is really, really problematic. The original language of this text is Greek. The one word that we have for love, they have at least four or five words. And from those words, a whole bunch of other words that are derived from those keywords. And the word love that we employ is so incredibly inadequate. We use the one word to describe a heap of different emotions or experiences or responses. For example, we say, man, I just love God. And that is the highest word that we can employ to describe how we feel about God. I love God. But at the same time, we say, I love God. We say, I love golf or I love swimming or I love my wife or I really love chocolate. And that's how inadequate the word love is. Totally inadequate. We use the same word to describe our intimate relationship with God as we do our enjoyment of chocolate. And it's exactly why we stumble over these kinds of passages. Like this one where Jesus says, love your enemies. But again, in the Greek, the word that is employed there that translates into the English love is a word agapeo. Agapeo is a derivative of the word agape, which maybe we're familiar with, which is the highest form of love. That is the kind of uh, love that is most often attributed to God. And Jesus uses this word agapeo. Now the word agapeo is not most often used in terms of showing affection towards another person. And I love this description. Agapeo speaks of love in a social or moral sense. Now listen to this. Agapeo is demonstrating moral integrity to everyone, even your enemies. And I've got to be really, really clear on this point. 
Sometimes the circumstances of life make it seemingly impossible to love someone in the way that we understand love. Sometimes we carry the the scars and the pain and the bitterness and the anger of being so deeply hurt or deeply wounded and sadly for many so horribly abused by another person. Friends, let me tell you, I know that I know that I know this morning that God can bring about a process of healing and a process of forgiveness where we can get to a place where we're able to let go of the pain and the wounding and the bitterness so that it no longer has a hold over us and we're no longer consumed by the offence. Can I hear an amen this morning? Because the truth is in many circumstances, you'll never be friends with that person. You'll never speak to them. Maybe you'll never see them again. But the wonderful truth about what God does is that we can come to a place where that hurt no longer dominates me. And instead, I can come to that place where to love them means I demonstrate moral integrity towards that person. Does this make sense? I give up my right for revenge. I give up my right for retribution. I'm going to display godly moral integrity towards that person. I don't wish them harm. But with God's strength, come to a place where I can sincerely desire God's best for them. That with the peace of God ruling my heart, I can even come to a place of being able to pray for them. That in thought, word and deed, I reflect God's character by maintaining moral integrity towards that person. Agapeo, to love your enemies. And friends, I sincerely believe this. That because this is something that Jesus commands us to do, it will be Jesus who gives us everything we need to be able to live out that command. Can I hear an amen this morning? And for some of us, that's going to be a process. That's going to be a journey. But He will equip us to do it. So if loving God and loving others is the first condition of experiencing God's love in our own lives, then the second condition that I actually see in Scripture is our obedience to God. Jesus said in John 14 and 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And again, he's speaking in this personal sense of being loved by God. And Jesus is emphasizing the point that if you want to personally encounter God's love for you, it is conditional upon us living in obedience to his commands. Now that sounds super legalistic. But our obedience to him is simply this. It's saying, Lord, I want to live in such a way as to please and to honour you. 
I want to live in such a way that I'm living according to your plan and purpose for my life. And if we make that our goal and our focus, Jesus says, I will show myself to you. It's a promise he says. In a real and personal way, Jesus will reveal himself to you. Jesus actually demonstrated that for us in regards to his own relationship with God as he lived as a man on this earth. In John 14 and 31, reading from the Amplified, he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know, the world may be convinced that I love the Father and that I only do what the Father has instructed me to do. I act in full agreement with his orders. And Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the will of his Father. Friends, the truth is, in regards to our relationship with God, we cannot sit back in some corner and say, well, I want God to love me, but I I, I don't want to serve him. I want him to love me. I want to experience his love, but I, I, I don't want to serve him. Friends, the whole thing is, is totally interconnected. Our experience of his love can never be detached from our obedience to him. I'm going to invite the team to come back as I wrap this up this morning. You doing okay? So as we wrap this up, I started by saying God's love, we see it expressed in three different ways in Scripture. We see his universal love where God loves the whole world. We see that God's love is also a covenant love with his people. And under the new covenant, that extends to us, the church. But then there is this beautiful personal aspect of God's love. And yes, the nature of God's love is unconditional. But the reality of personally encountering God's love is not unconditional. What are those conditions? We must love God and love others. And we must live in obedience to his commands. Maybe the truth is that for some of us here this morning, there's a command that we need to follow that will bring us into that first encounter with God's love. Acts 3 and 19 says this, and it's a command, repent. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And we call this a call to repentance. The picture, the word, the, the picture that the word repentance gives us is this, uh, I'm changing my mind. I was heading in this direction and now I'm doing a 180 and heading in a totally different direction. I'm turning from my old life and turning to a new life through faith in Jesus. Where we live with Christ at the centre And where we live in obedience to his commands, where we live pursuing his will for our lives. Jesus said these words in Matthew 10 and 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Reading the same verse from the Amplified. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before men and confesses me out of a state of oneness with me, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven and confess that I am abiding in him. And you can leave this place this morning confident 
That as you say yes to Jesus, as you reach out to Jesus, that he will be abiding in you, that he will be guiding you and directing you. And babe, you can bring the words of that prayer up onto the screen. And here's a prayer that we offer to you. There's no magic in these words, but we've got to know, how do I take that first step towards Jesus? And sometimes a prayer is a really useful kind of line in the sand. I remember that morning where God spoke to my heart and I just prayed a prayer surrendering my life to Him. And it's an important step. There's actually no prayer like this in the Bible. But these keys are really important for us to understand that I'm in right standing with God. That I have repented of my sin, of my rebellion. I've turned to face Him and I accept Jesus into my heart and I want to live pursuing Him. I want to live every moment of every day discovering something more and more of the depth of God's love for me. Pursuing who it is that God's created me to be, to follow His will and discover that adventure of just being connected with God and allowing Him to direct my life. And the greatest hope of all, knowing the promise of eternal life that is to come. So I'm going to read the words to this prayer and you can just read through, just maybe echo them in your heart this morning. And if God's tapping on your heart, if you're coming to that place of going, you know what? Uh, I've got to take a bold step. I, I really need to step into that place of obedience. And say, Jesus, thank you for all you've done. And I need to encounter God in a very, very real way. One of those conditions is just being obedient to what He's called us to do. So here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God and have the right to control my life. I confess that I've rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word and deed, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way that I have lived and I ask you to forgive me as best as I can. I want to turn away from rebellion and obey you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it. 